know, eventually this thing will be like automated, like it'll come out of the floor or come from the ceiling or, or something. We'll get, we'll get one of these kids to, to build us a robot. That Good morning, everyone. Happy Easter. He is risen. risen Yes, indeed. All right, uh, quick announcements, and then we'll pray, and then we'll we'll jump into this thing. Um, So uh, quick announcements. So next food bank is next week, um, April 9th and 10th. Um, please, uh, if, like I say, if you can help out with that, please uh, participate where you can. Um, we receive the food on Friday, and then we give it away on, on, uh, on Saturday. So I say if, um, please keep up with your volunteering. We have had record um, people coming through the, the food bank. It's certainly a time of need in our community. And um, God is, man, God is amazing. He is faithful in how he continues to support that ministry and volunteers and, and all of those things. So like I say, if you please plan on um, helping out with that. Um, I don't know if you guys saw the, the news again, um, but uh, they're still, they're having a border crisis right now in, in Myanmar and Thailand. There's a bunch of people, a bunch of refugees that are, are trying to flee out of the country um, as the, the military continues its crackdown on, on um, the people that uh, supported the government there. Um, before this military coup, so if we can keep on praying um, for the the church plants there, um, and you know uh, Ray and Candace obviously are, are still here and can't get back um, to their mission field, so if we can continue to pray for for them. Um, but if you saw Matthias has posted, um, they have been building uh, um, some new buildings there. Um, if you're not following them on Facebook, you should you should definitely do that. Um, they're making amazing progress. They have a, a new wall that goes all the way around their their ranching area. Um, to protect their animals, and they also, like I say, have some, some new buildings that are under construction there, um, so certainly uh, keep up with them. Um, and then uh, next week, we actually have the, the Gideons are coming to, to speak to us, um, so we'll get a, a great time with, uh, with Stephen from, uh, from the Gideons next week. Um, and then, like I say, we, I um, haven't quite connected with Michael from the, the jail ministry, but we should be having him come um, here as quickly as we can get him uh, scheduled. Bible studies are, are back in swing after spring break, so Tuesdays here at the church at 6.30. Oh, that's right. So somebody is going to go see a new grandbaby. I know, but so I guess, so the ladies will be on a break for the, the next few weeks, but the, the men's, I think, will, will still be meeting led by Vernon. Give them extra hugs for us, will you? Excellent. <laughs> Every day. All right. Um, so uh, let's see. What else we got? Uh, so coming up, um, Secret Church will be on April 23rd. That's a Friday. And then April 25th, we will have our, our potluck, our, um, our first annual barbecue cook-off uh, potluck. I know. So we've, I put the address for the Andrews Ranch uh, into, uh, into the bulletin. So please plan on coming. Um, you know, I, I don't care if you bring anything. I don't care. Just please come. Uh, I was watching a thing last night um, and to get sidetracked because I do. Um, but it's true when we um, when we have things, and especially when we have an outdoor cookout, it is a time of fellowship. It is a time of gathering. When we have an informal meal, where we get to just spend time together and enjoy food together, um, it just brings us all closer, and it's a special time. And uh, so, please, please, please plan on coming. Please plan on joining us um, for that. Um, if you have uh, your bulletin there on the the side panel, there's the handy dandy tear off tab. It is handy, and it is dandy, and uh, <laughs> if you want to connect with us, um, please connect with us. We have Facebook and Instagram, and um, we have all kinds of ways, but you can also put your email, your contact info onto that, and put it in the offering box at the back of the church, and we will get you onto our list. All right, 
Let's bow our heads and pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for thank you for your risen son. Thank you for this beautiful morning where we get to gather together in your name. Lord, please help us to be a day where we do nothing but celebrate you. Father, we bring so many things before you this morning. We have friends and family that are, are hurting, that are physically hurting. We have surgeries that are, are coming up that uh, are going to be long-term recoveries. We have just all kinds of things that are going on in our lives. We worry about our children. We worry about our coworkers. We worry about our country. Father, we lift all those things up to you this fine Easter morning. We know that you have a plan and that it's all in your hands. Father, please help us to face tomorrow unafraid, knowing that you have already won the battle. And Lord, please help us to be your hands and feet, to do as you have called us to do. Please open your word to us this morning that we could hear you this morning. Amen. All right. Um, so first of all, happy Easter. And uh, I, all right, so we've got communion this afternoon. So the kind of the order of the, the service will be, I, I have a, a message that we'll do, and then we will have communion. I, I do promise I, we will get there. Um, I do have quite a bit of material for us to go over today um, for Easter, but I will, you know, try not to, to talk too fast, um, but I will also try not to, uh, to keep you late either. Um, but here, the thing I was thinking about, uh, talking about the, this message this morning, I uh, was pretty torn, I have to tell you, because um, the cross has been heavy on my mind for, for actually about six months now, and how we talk about the cross and the importance of the cross, the scriptural basis of the cross. And if this was my one chance, if this was the only time that I got to talk to you about Jesus, what would I want to say and how would I say it? And that being the case, um, I, it's going to be kind of like drinking from the fire hose. There's going to be a, a ton of scripture coming up here. Um, we're going to walk through the Easter story, the history part of it, so that um, at least at, at one point, you know, if, even if it's just a good refresher, that you'll have walked through the, um, the, the story from the Passion Week. And then we're going to go into the, the purpose of the cross. And hopefully somewhere in there you will pick up some nuggets. You know, I always say that these are putting things into your toolbox. And I hope somewhere in there you will find a wrench, you will find a screwdriver that you can put into your toolbox that it will help you for later. Maybe somewhere in there it will help your faith grow a little bit stronger. Maybe help you see things in a new way. So again, over these things, over what we're going to go over in the next um, 45 minutes or so, um, we're going to go over the basis of the Passion Week with Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, that meaning, the point behind the cross. And over this, we need to lay a couple of things. We need to make sure that we have a God-centered view of Christianity. We really want to move away from a man-centered view, and especially a man-centered view of the cross. It's one of the things, and um, we'll, we'll get there later on, but it's very popular in theology right now to take a man-centered view of the cross and of Christianity. That is to say, Jesus loves me and Jesus died for me. And while that's true, that's not the main point of the cross. And that takes a man-centered view of the crucifixion instead of a God-centered view. And the other thing we want to overlay over this is that our doctrine must always point to the return of Christ, that we always must have an expectation that God is coming back, that Christ is coming back. 
So let's jump right in. It's, uh, it's in your bulletin. We have our, our timeline right here. I'm going to open with a, a quote um, from Charles Spurgeon. And the reason I started off with this, we need to remember some things. We need to remember that these are real events. This is history. It's not mythology. These are real people in real places. These are real events. You can go right now and walk. You can stand where Jesus stood. You can stand on the hill where Jesus was crucified today. These are not abstract constructs or fictitious people or places. There's, no, we're not talking about Mount Olympus or Atlantis or some, some other story that just is based on our, our fiction. This is real stuff. And when we realize that, it should drive us to our knees. It should drive us to our face in humility. So this is what Spurgeon says. This is about humility. It says, Once more, think of the life and the death of the Savior. See your master taking a towel and washing his disciples' feet. And follower of Christ, wilt thou not humble thyself? Nay, see him all his life long. Is not this sentence the compendium of his biography? He humbled himself. Was he not here on earth, always stripping, taking off first one robe of honor and then another, until, naked, he was fastened to the cross, and then emptying out his inmost self, pouring out the floods of his lifeblood from his heart, and giving up all for us? till they laid him penniless in a borrowed grave. His honor and his breath were both taken away, joined with the wicked in his death, and made as vile as they. How low was our dear Redeemer brought? How then can we be proud? Stand, my beloved brethren and sisters, at the foot of the cross, and count the purple drops by which you have been cleansed. See the thorn crown. Mark still the relics of the spittle on those blessed cheeks. Go round the cross and mark his scored shoulders, still gushing with encrimsoned rills. See hands and feet given up to the rough iron and his whole self to mockery and scorn. See the bitterness and the pangs and the throes of inward grief showing themselves in his outward frame. Hear the thrilling shriek, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And if you do not lie prostrate on the ground before that cross, you have never seen it. If you are not humbled in the presence of Jesus, you do not know him. I pray the Lord brings us in contemplation to Calvary, and I know our position will no longer be that of the inflated, pompous man of pride, but we shall take the humble place of one who loves much, because much has been forgiven him. So we're going to bounce all over Scripture, but we're going to be mostly in John and in Mark. Um, if you want to follow along in your Bibles, um, we're going to start with uh, Mark chapter 11 and John chapter 12. We're just going to walk through this timeline. If you don't know this, or maybe it's a good refresher, we're just going to walk through the timeline of the Passion Week. Now, I gave an alternate timeline last week when we were at Palm Sunday, where John MacArthur differs with this. He thinks that, uh, um, that this goes, uh, instead of Saturday, you would put Sunday here, and then instead of Sunday, you would put Monday um, if, you are, uh, if you follow John MacArthur and believe that his timeline versus this one. But this is the one that I was taught, I don't know, since I was, I was a kid. So that's what I put down here. All right, Saturday, the anointing of Jesus. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Then we go to Sunday, the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, that we celebrated last week. It says, Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And then Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And we go to Monday. This is when Jesus goes and he cleanses the temple. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. They feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. I will pull two quick notes out between Sunday and Monday. The first one on Sunday, we want to emphasize Jesus, uh, his prophecy. He's able to prophesy that there's a donkey that's available, that there's a follower that has this donkey, an unridden colt, the foal of a donkey, um, that he is able to get there. He, he can see the future. When we talk about Jesus as, as king, we talk about him as Lord of Lords, there's evidence there on Sunday. Next thing I want to talk about is Jesus' authority. And I promise we will, we will get here at the end. But notice that Jesus has the authority to drive these people out, that they do not contest or fight with him. There is no violence. There is no arrest that comes as he drives out the money changers and the lenders um, from the temple. So just think about the authority of Jesus and the prophecy of Jesus in those two. Then we get to Tuesday. This is when Jesus' authority is challenged by the leaders of the, of the church there. They said, they arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? He answers them by John the Baptist. Then it says, at that time, we jump to Mark 13 here, it says, at that time men will see the coming of man in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heavens. When they ask him, they say, by whose authority do you do this? He asks them a question. He says, well, by whose authority did, did John the Baptist baptize? Did he do it by man's or by God's authority? It's kind of a, a trap. And they refuse to answer him. So Jesus says, well, then neither will I answer you. But the point of this is to say that the, the chief priests and the Sadducees, the Pharisees, they're losing power, and they don't like it very much, and they're already plotting for a way to get rid of Jesus, to get Jesus out of the way. It's been three years coming, and they will finally have their opportunity. But, again, we need to have this bend. Well, we read that verse from Mark chapter 13, that Jesus is coming back, that as we celebrate this Easter, that we also need to have an arc towards Jesus' authority, Jesus' power, his prophecy, that he will return and we will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. All right, let's go to Tuesday and Wednesday. Some people will call Wednesday Silent Wednesday. But this is the betrayal of Jesus. It says, Now the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest and to kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. But then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Then we go to Thursday, to the Last Supper. It says, On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to, to, to eat the Passover? Again, we see Jesus' prophecy here. Because he says, if you go, you'll find a man who's carrying a, a bundle 
grab him, and he has a room already prepared for us, for us to go and eat. And they found, and it says, the disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. Now, there's quite a few points here for the, for the Last Supper. Um, the first one, and most of this stuff, I, by the way, if you ever want to, if you want to dive more deeply into this outline, this is from David Platt. It's from Secret Church 6. Um, so if you want a, an opportunity to dive more deeply into, uh, into this, um, there's a great chance um, to do that. But he calls it, David calls this the humility of Christ, where he washes his disciples' feet. And we're in John chapter 13. It says, it was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who spoke and brought all into being, stooped himself to wash the feet of his disciples. Mm. We continue on with the prophecy of Christ. He predicts his betrayal and Peter's denial. He says, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Jesus responds, I tell you the truth. Today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Then David calls us the comfort of Christ. Isn't this incredible? He's going to the cross. He's going to die. He's told them he's going to die. He's told them he's going to be... And he comforts them. He offers words of comfort to the people that he's leaving. He says... All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I live with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. That's in John chapter 14. Then John chapter 17, he prays for his disciples. He says, I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's for us. Isn't that incredible? That Jesus would take the time while he's on the way to the cross to pray to the Father for us. Then he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. There's three agonizing prayers that he prays. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that, if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And that's juxtaposed with, um, with three tired disciples. You have... Um, Peter, James, and John, that go with him, and they fall asleep. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And that leads into the arrest of Jesus. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd 
armed with swords and clubs. They say it's a cohort, probably about 600 guys, sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And the men seized Jesus and arrested him. That gets us to, to Friday. So really midnight-ish. So we're going to go through the trials of Jesus. So the first, he goes before Annas. It says, Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas. He was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. And he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. And so from that day on, they plotted to take his life. <laughs> he had no idea how right he was. <laughs> they took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, elders and teachers of the law, came together. Peter followed at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then we go to Mark chapter 15, where it says, Verily early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. It's not in the scriptures, but tradition says that Nicodemus is the only person to have spoken up for Jesus at his trials. And that's what, him outing himself as a follower of Jesus what, is what led to his exile. But here it was, the teacher of the law. That's what Jesus calls him, is the teacher of the law in John chapter 3. And he's the only one who speaks up on Jesus' behalf at these trials. And he's a member of the Sanhedrin. He's a member of this council. So they take him before Pilate. So Pilate's the, the governor of the area, and he's come from the, the seaside where he usually lives into Jerusalem just for Passover with a large group of Roman soldiers. He marches into the city about the same time that Jesus is doing the triumphal entry. So he's there in residence. Normally the rest of the year he would not be, but he's there in residence. So, and remember, the, the Sanhedrin, the Jews, can't kill anybody. So the whole reason that they're doing this, the whole reason, because they could do all sorts of other punishments that were within the law, the whole reason they're bringing them before Pilate is because they want him dead, and they no longer have the authority to, to do capital punishment, to kill anyone. So they take him before Pilate. He says, Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. And Jesus answers, Yes, it is as you say. The chief priest accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. So Pilate hearing that, uh, that Jesus is from Galilee. So remember that uh, there's the, called the Tetrarch. There's actually four rulers over the, the area that was the old Israel. And Herod happens to be in town. This is the son of Herod the Great is in town. And he happens to be the one that's over that area of Nazareth and Galilee. So Pilate says, hey, I know a way I can, I can get this off of my plate. Herod's in town. He's a citizen from his area. I should send Jesus over to, over to Herod. So that's exactly what he does. He sends him over to Herod. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. 
dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. And that day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. So what shall I do then with the one you call king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. This is the crowd. They cried, crucify him. And he asked them, he said, why? What crime has he committed? But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. I'm wanting to satisfy the crowd because there's a guy there, Barabbas. He's he's, um, actually been betraying the government and he's accused of murder. And Pilate's thinking, well, I can probably just flog this guy, Jesus, and release him. That way the, the followers of Jesus are happy, the Jews are happy because he's been punished, and this true bad guy, this murderer, Barabbas, will be, will be sent to the cross. Should be a win-win. He's surprised when the crowd instead cries for Barabbas to be released. But you have to think about that if you're Barabbas. Because quite frankly, we can all put ourselves in his shoes. He was guilty. He deserved the punishment that he was going to get. He deserved death. Jesus took his place in that death sentence. He took all of our place. So they shouted, crucify him. So Pilate released Barabbas to them, and he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes back on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. Then we get into the crucifixion. So it was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They fashioned a sign. It says, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. Jesus' response is to pray for his persecutors. He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. But one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. says, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him, saying, don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he turned to Jesus and said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, saying, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. If you ever want to know what it takes for salvation, what it takes to follow Jesus, that's the most simple. There it is. That man could do nothing, nothing for himself, nothing for the kingdom. Anybody who tells you that to be a Christian, you have to do something, you have to say something, you have to go out and pass out something or get so many conversions or do so many good deeds, look right here to the thief on the cross. He was utterly helpless, hopeless, condemned. All he could do is turn to Jesus and say, please, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's it. That's the gospel right there. That's all you need to know to be saved. Turn to Jesus earnestly in your heart. Take him as your Lord and Savior and say, please remember me. He is good and he is faithful and he will answer. 
So while he's on the cross, and again, this is incredible, he's suffering, he's, he's going to die. And there, the disciples have come, and so there's, think about, so there's Mary, the, the wife of Clopas, Mary Magdalene, and his, his mom, Mary, is there. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, <laughs> he said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son. And to John, he said, here is your mother. And from that time on, John took her into his home. And we get to the last three hours. It says, at the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar and put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. So if we flip over to, to Mark chapter 15, 34, it says, At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsake, forsaken me? And then John 19, it says, I am thirsty. And John 19, 30 says, It is finished. And then the last cry in Luke 23, 46 says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last. For those of you who don't know, when I, when I made this, the reason I made it the way that I did is that it's as close of a replica as I could, I could make it. So the Romans, remember, these were, these were devices of, of execution. They were not pieces of art. They were not things to be admired. So generally, the post part of it would, uh, would be stuck in the ground. It would be fixed, and it would stay there. Um, I won't move it because the thing's pretty heavy, but the crossbar is actually what removes. And it's about this height because it needed to be tall enough that a couple of Roman soldiers could lift it up and over and drop it down onto the bar. One thing I'm missing, one thing that I, I always need to add, there's actually supposed to be a little piece right about here called a sadiq. It's a sedil. It's a little saddle that would sit here. And it was just enough because remember, you're, you're pinned up against the cross and your tendency is to go forward. But remember, your hands are nailed. So to get a breath, you have to pull yourself back to try and breathe. But when you do that, you're pulling against your hands. Well, they put this little saddle in there. It was just enough. It was smoothed and rounded over so that you would think maybe you could rest or get back on it. But as soon as you did, you would fall back forward against your hands, just adding a little bit of extra pain and torture to the process. But after he passes away, a soldier, to make sure that he's dead, comes by. And they normally, after a time, they're actually going to go and break the legs of the people that are hanging there just to finish the process, get it done quickly. But they come to find Jesus, and they think he's dead, and sure enough, he is. And so they take a spear, and they, they puncture his side. And that's when the blood and the water comes out of his lungs, and they know that, that he is dead. And about the same time, like I say, is when they're, they're flooding the courts of the, the temple to flush the the, water, the blood from all the lambs being sacrificed out of the temple courts. They fill it to about, you know, foot deep, and they scrub it out, and all that water comes dumping out the side of the, the temple. They have these big scuppers, and it goes right down into the, the Valley of Gehenna, which is right off the side of the temple. So about that same time, and then that's when suddenly, wham, the curtain is ripped, the Holy of Holies is emptied, and when he breathes his last. So then we get to John chapter 19, verses 38 through 41. I misquoted this on Friday, by the way. I said it was John chapter 21. It's not. It's John chapter 19. It says, Later, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. Remember I mentioned Nicodemus? 
he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. That's a massive amount. That was a, a, a huge amount, and it spoke of Nicodemus' wealth, but also of his commitment to Jesus. The amount that you bought would be kind of a, a statement that you were intentionally making about how much you cared for the person who, who passed away. The two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. And this was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. I can't get over that. I can't get over Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel. This man who would intentionally go and defile himself. He would intentionally make himself unclean for Passover to bury his Lord. There's one thing that I want for myself, for everyone in here, is to have that kind of commitment. That whatever barriers that we have, whatever rituals, whatever rites that we put in our lives, that none of those things ever stand in our way of worshiping or of taking care of our duties to God. So on Saturday, Matthew chapter 27, it says, The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. So Pilate answered, take a guard. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Then we get to Sunday. We're in John chapter 20 says, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started to run for the tomb. But the other disciple outran Peter, just if you were wondering, for all time, and reached the tomb first. And he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. And he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. And finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, John wants to make sure you know that, also went inside. He saw and believed. Go to verse 11. It says, Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? She said, They have taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they have put him. And at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who was it you were looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them, that he had said these things to her. So there it is. That's the timeline. That's a walkthrough from, of the whole Passion Week. So the question is, what, what does it mean? What does it mean for us? 
There's one word we can, we can do. That is atonement. Atonement for sin. You've maybe heard that before. You can break it down into three words. At one meant. That is to say that we are currently separated. We are separated from God. But we want to be at one. So the question is, what is separating us from eternal life with God? What is that? It's, the answer is sin. It's rebellion. It's disobedience. There's a good way to define sin. Again, this comes from David Platt, but it says, sin is man taking God's place. Grace is God taking man's place. But the question still remains. How can we be restored to a right relationship with God? How can we? We're going to table that for just a moment. I put this in your message map, but there are some things that we can learn about the cross, some truths that we can, we can drive nails into about the cross. First thing, first truth, the cross is a triumph over the forces of evil, sin, and death. The cross does communicate the extent of God's love for us. The cross shows us how to love like Christ with a sacrificial kind of love. The cross illustrates the significance of God's justice, and the cross honors the character of God. And the cross also demonstrates our need for a substitute. See, the central truth, if we were to distill this whole thing down to one sentence, as best we possibly could, it's satisfaction through substitution. That is to say that we are separated, that there is a debt to be paid, that there is something that is owed. But we don't get to pay it. Instead, Jesus pays it. He's the substitute. I like to use the phrase for substitute teacher. I always liked it when we had a substitute teacher except for when they actually like really wanted you to work. It was the greatest thing when you had a sub and you would walk in and there was the media cart with the TV and the VCR. You're like, all right, good day in class today. You walk in and instead their name's on the board. You're like, all right, I guess we're actually going to have to do work today. But it's just like that. Substitution. See, this is important. If we have a light or a superficial understanding of God's wrath, we have a light and superficial view of salvation and the work of the cross, it gives us a man-centered view of sin. See, if you and I, if we lie to each other, it stinks. It's not good, but the thing is that we all lie. If we are stolen from, robbed, or cheated on, attacked, it hurts. The thing is that we know that we have also dished out hurt to others. And I would caution you that a low view of God is common in our culture. Because see, the thing is, all of us, we have been using hurtful words and taking toys and pushing other kids down, lying to our parents since we were in grade school. So we need to shift to a God-centered view of sin in light of God's wrath. If we were to flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 through 6, this is what David Platt says is the central verse that talks about the purpose of the cross. It says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. And this has now been witnessed to at the proper time. There it is. There's one God, there's one mediator between God, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. See, the thing is, when we normally talk about the cross, we normally talk about it in terms of our salvation, what it means to me. And most of us have heard something like this throughout our entire lives. Number one, 
We're fine the way that we are. God don't make no junk. You're perfectly fine just the way that you are. Number two, sin is a, it's a sickness, but you can live with it, and quite frankly, everybody does it. And, you know, if it's bothering you, if there's something in your life that's bothering you, we have racks and racks and racks of self-help books, whether it's finances or gambling or, you know, eating, whatever it is. We have racks and racks and racks of self-help books if, if it's bothering you. But really, come as you are. Because, you see, God loves you. He loves you so much he sent his son to die for you, right? John three sixteen. it says, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. That's true. Every bit of that is true. But it can lead to liberalism, where we get unmoored from the scripture. We toss away the Ten Commandments, Galatians 5 and Ephesians 5. We say, well, God doesn't really hate those things. They're really more guidelines than rules, if you're a Pirates of the Caribbean fan. <laughs> and really, they're subject to change based on the relative time periods and, and cultures. I mean, you know, Jesus, God, they didn't really understand a time like this when we'd have internet, when we'd have all of these things. Things change, so it's all right. And it takes a low view of God and it is true that God is our Abba Father. He allows us to call him Daddy, and he adopts us as children. That is true. But he is also King of Kings. He is also Lord of Lords. He is also righteous and holy, and the unrighteous cannot exist in his presence. See, the thing is that we have all been, I have been handing out hurts since I was able to speak. And God called me, and I answered. And I turned to Jesus, and I called him Lord and Savior. And he turned to me and said, I tell you the truth, you will be with me in paradise. However, part of the fruit of my converted spirit should be a relentless pursuit of the things of God. 2 Timothy 2.15, or a one verse, it says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. And while I can't know God exhaustively or completely, right, I am finite. He is infinite. He is perfect. I am imperfect. I am tainted by sin. But what I do know about God can be the truth. The thing is that God is good. Luke 8, chapter 18, verses 19. God is truth. That's in Exodus chapter 34. God is love. 1 John 4. God is mercy. That's in Ephesians 2. God is kind. In Titus. God is righteous and just. So in Psalm 119, you are righteous, Lord, and your laws are right. Deuteronomy 32, 4, he is the rock, his works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. He is good, he is truth, he is love, he is mercy, he is kindness, he is righteous, and he is just. And he is not any one of those things at any one time. He is all of those things all of the time. It's not like he puts on one face, one act, and then takes on the other. He is all of those things all of the time. And God is also unchanging. Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Malachi 3, 6, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. 
So why do we take such a low view of sin? Why do we take such a low view of God's wrath? Think about Genesis chapter 19. That's when Lot, they're freeing Sodom and Gomorrah, and Lot's, life, uh, Lot's wife looks back, and she's turned immediately into a pillar of salt. Think about Exodus chapter 19. It says, do not touch the mountain or be put to death. Joshua chapter 7. Achan and his family, they were taken out of the camp and stoned to death for keeping plunder. Exodus chapter 32, think about the golden calf. Think about 2 Samuel chapter 6, that's when Uzzah was struck down because he touched the ark. Remember, he sees the ark is, is about to fall and he reaches out to grab it and he's immediately struck dead. Think about Numbers chapter 15. It says that Sabbath breakers are to be put to death. It says the man must die. The whole assembly must stone him outside the camp. Deuteronomy chapter 22, it says, Put to death for rape or adultery. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. Deuteronomy chapter 3. It's when Moses is banned from entering the promised land. Why? Because he struck a stone for, uh, for water on his own. It's a little uncomfortable, isn't it? But God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. If he is the same forever, where does that leave us? How serious does God take sin and the purity of his people? Because we just read it. Each one of those punishments is right and it is just. And we need to ask a different question. I like this analogy. How much dog poop do you want in your brownies? When you're making brownies, how much dog poop is okay in them? A little bit? Is a little bit of dog poop okay? Or do you want none? Would you rather have no dog poop in your brownies? Because our God is a God who does not like dog poop in his brownies. <laughs> but we need to feel the weight of God's righteous judgment. His judgment is right. It is always the right and the best decision. His judgment is just. It correctly punishes for the wrong that was done. So how bad is it? How bad is sin when we rebel against God? Go to Genesis chapter 1. One sin, one rebellion caused all of creation to fall. One sin, one rebellion caused Satan to be cast down from heaven forever. There's a guy who was stoned to death for gathering wood on the Sabbath. How much work have we done on the Sabbath? How many times have we cursed using Jesus or God's names? What about obedience? How well have we obeyed even the first and the second commandment, the two when he boils it down, all right, you can't handle 10. I'll get it down to two. Love God and love your neighbor. How many times have we had a, a flippant attitude towards prayer and church and worship? We have chores. We have things to do. We've been busy. You know, church isn't the end-all, be-all. But the thing is, that casual attitude, the casual attitude about prayer and worship and the word, something that should speak to you in your heart, in your heart, that you have a low view of God, that you have a low view of sin, that you have a low view of the things of God. Because compare that to our Jewish ancestors. Remember, God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Our Jewish ancestors had 14 ways to avoid saying the name of God because his name was so holy as not to be uttered by unclean lips. Our ancestors removed their shoes, fell down on their faces, tore their clothes. They weeped, they moaned, they wailed at the thought of their sin. Do you think God has changed? Do you think he's in heaven saying, yeah, it's okay, I didn't really mean it. 
I understand you're living a different time. You don't need to set aside a day for me and not work. You can watch porn and lust after women all you want to. I never took that whole marriage thing that seriously anyway. It's all right. Show up when you think about it. Worship when you feel like it or, you know, when you get around to it. My name? Yeah, don't worry about it. People should certainly curse using my name. If you were to turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 1 or Job chapter 38, when God speaks, there is darkness, and then there is light. When he speaks, there is earth, and then there is water. Mountains obey his commands. Every raindrop that falls, every snowflake that falls, every plant that rises up from the earth does so because God has commanded it to. Every single one. Each of them spring into life at the word of God. I was talking about power, authority. Think about Jesus in the boat when he, de- he calms the winds and the waves. The winds and the waves obey him. Think about Matthew chapter 8, verses 28, when he goes and he's restoring two demon-possessed men. He says to them, go. So they came out and they went into the pigs. Even demons, mountains, the rain, the sun, they all obey God when he speaks. What about us? Can we look God in the eye and say, that we have done as well as those demons? That we have done as well as the wind and the waves? Two commandments. Not suggestions, not things to put on your to-do list, not round to it. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of the universe commands, love God, love your neighbor. All right, I'll go crawl back into my hole now. The point of that is to feel the weight of sin, to feel the power of sin, to know our place, to know our rebellion against God. Each and every single one of us has done it in different ways at different times. Multiple times a day we have done this type of rebellion. I've got this quote from Horatius Bonar. It says, "'Twas I that shed the sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. Of all that shouting multitude, I feel that I am one. And in that din of voices rude, I recognize my own. Around the cross, the throng I see, mocking the sufferers groan. Yet still my voice, it seems to be as if I mocked alone. Because in the light of our sin, in the light of our rebellion, God did something amazing. He said, you can't get there. You can't make yourself right. You can't do it. It's all right, I got it. Because not only am I holy, not only am I righteous, not only am I just, I am also merciful and loving and kind. And I created you in my image, and I said that it was good, and I mean it. So I'm going to send my son. And my son is going to take your place. You're going to drive nails through his hands. You're going to nail him to a tree. You're going to mock him and flog him and put a crown on his head, put a sign over him that says King of the Jews. And while you're doing that, I'm saving you. I'm giving you a way for you to be atoned, for you to be at one, for you to come back to me. Isn't that an amazing gift? 
So when we think about the cross, we need to think about it with that type of purpose, with that type of intent, with that type of weight. Because that's what it is. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. And this has now been witnessed to at the proper time. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Amen. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Jesus was like us, fully man, but not like us, fully God. And at the right time, at just the right time, he went to the cross and he suffered and he died. So how did I do? Do we have a deeper appreciation for the cross? Do we have a deeper appreciation for the righteousness of God, for the weight of sin, for the meaning of it in our lives? The divine dilemma of how it would be possible for God to be all of those things, to be loving and graceful and merciful and kind and just, were all solved in one place at the cross. The question is, will you, will you, a lost sinner, turn to him? Because he is faithful. And truly I say to you, this day he has opened paradise to you. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Say it again. He is risen he is risen indeed. All right. We got communion. Let's do this thing. All right. So um, we're going to do communion, uh, close out our, our service. So uh, the way we do this, we have the elements up here, and they're, they're really funky because of COVID. So it's a little cup, and it has a little flap on the top of it, and the bread is inside there. So you need somebody with fingernails to open it. So if you don't have fingernails, like me, if you, um, then you need to find somebody with fingernails to open the, the top part of it. But there are two parts there. So everybody just come up in, in rows. We'll get the, the elements here out of the, the things. Um, the way we do this is we'll get everybody a chance to get their elements. Um, and this is for everyone, by the way. If you call Jesus Lord and Savior, if you call him your, your, your Lord, then please partake. You don't have to be a, a member of the church. You don't have to have you know, done anything special. Please join us in communion. Um, you are free to, uh, to take the elements back and enjoy them on your own. Or in just a moment, once everybody has been served, then I will um, lead everyone in, in consuming the elements as well. Right. Ron, can we lead up the sides? Yep. Larry, can you get us kicked off? Right. Yep. And we'll just go by rows and, and get those going. Yep. Yeah. Hey, Steve, would you go make, get the kids? Make sure they're...
I know. Struggle is real. <laughs> Cannot wait for this stuff to be over. <laughs> Thank you. We all need an extra minute anyway to get these things open. All right. Have we by accident omitted anyone? Did everyone get served? Anyone? All right. What's up? I think we got, did we get all the kids? Yeah, okay, great. All right. So um, I'm going to pray just for a moment. Father, thank you for this Easter. Thank you for the Lord's Supper. Father, we are... Um, gathered here in your name. We have the elements before us. We uh, are seeking your blessing for you just to quiet our hearts and our minds that we could join with you, that we could commune with you as we celebrate this meal together. So uh, we're in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 um, through uh, 26. It says, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, This cup is the new covenant, which is sealed in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, thank you. Thank you for smiling faces and just all of the beautiful things of Easter. The laughter of our children, the murmur of our voices as we fellowship together. Father, thank you for this church. Lord, we are seeking to be about your business. We are earnestly seeking to be on your path. Please be with us. We still have a week to come up here, and if the sun comes up tomorrow, Father, we would like to be closer to you. We would like to be more focused on you tomorrow. So please, Lord, help us. Lord, I pray for a special blessing over our children, that they would see you, that they would hear you, that you, they would know you, that you would be the loudest voice that they hear, that they would know how precious and how beautiful and how loved each and every one of them are. I pray a blessing over our valley, Father, that you would see our little place and that you would see our people. And Father, if we can be your hands and feet and somehow serve those people around us, help them to know you, please send us. So please bless them prosper them, provide for them, every single person. Father, we ask that um, you be with our, our nation. We are so fortunate to live where we are. Please, Lord, bless every single person in this nation. Please be the loudest voice they hear. Please turn their hearts back to you. Please, Lord, send the Holy Spirit crashing through this nation that all eyes would be turned to you. Father, I 
think about our brothers and sisters around the world. I, people living in terror, people living in fear, people not able to gather on Easter and, and worship your name. Father, please be with them. Keep them safe. Father, we ask that you... Um, you come soon. Father, that we know that you are the cure for everything that is wrong in this world. And we want to keep your light burning. We want to be that lamp full of oil waiting for your return, Father. But please, come quickly. We ask all of that in the name of your risen Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.